Good morning. Is this the time when the person baptized sings? Is this? Because I'm pretty sure that's supposed to happen. As an alternative, open your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 5. We are preaching through this book. The name Genesis means beginnings. It is in the book of Genesis that we discover by God's gracious revelation to us how life began. We see how our relationship with God, where did that come from? Uh, when we ignore the book of Genesis, we, we lose sight of what it means to be human. And we become confused in what does it mean to make our way through life. And so there is great importance to us as we continue to work through this important book. In chapter 5, we see at the beginning, in verse 1, an important phrase uh, that is key to our understanding of what takes place in this chapter, but also how we understand the entire book. Genesis 5.1 starts with the phrase, this is the book of the generations of Adam. The entire book of Genesis is structured by the phrase, and these are the generations of. It's repeated 11 different times throughout the book of Genesis. Each time we read that phrase, we understand that uh, a new part of the story is starting to unfold for us. What follows this phrase is not typically about the person named. And so we see in verse 1, it says, the book of the generations of Adam, and yet the chapter is not about Adam. It's about those who follow Adam. Uh, in essence, this phrase is telling us, and this is what happened next. Whenever we read these are the generations of the storyline of the book of Genesis. And so the storyline of God's redemptive plan is unfolding more clearly and in a more advanced way. After what we've seen in the last two chapters, there is a dire need for the storyline of Genesis to advance. In chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned. They lived in a perfect garden where only goodness existed. And yet they, they turned away from what God had instructed. They sought to be like God themselves. With their sin brought corruption and death, which began to mar the perfect world that God created. Yet God gave a promise through Eve that a deliverer would come. We saw that uh, in chapter 3, verse 15. When God said to Satan, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. So there is this declaration that God would send one through Eve that would bruise, would crush the head of Satan, would destroy his works. He would bring harm, he would crush, strike the heel, he would bring harm, but he would be the one who is defeated. God's promise is about the ultimate victory God will have in the world he created, in the people which he placed in it. One from Eve will crush the work of Satan. And notice the promise that God gives about what will come is immediately after Adam and Eve sinned. There is no hesitation. There is no waiting. There is uh, no sense of God is not knowing what to do, how to respond. In fact, the promise comes so immediately. It rules over every moment that follows that first sin. The promise of God begins and rules over all of human history. From the first moment it was needed. God didn't allow the smallest gap of his people not having his promise. So in chapter 4, we heard last week, Eve bears her firstborn son, Cain, with great hope. Perhaps... Here, the one through Eve, he will be the promise. God is even now bringing the one who will deliver us. But then quickly, we see that all comes apart as as Cain in jealousy actually murders his own brother Abel. And so sin then just proliferates and continues through Cain's line and his descendants. And so we see in chapter four, as it begins to to give Cain's line, we see in verse 19 that in the seventh generation, Lamech is polygamous. He rejects God's one flesh purpose for marriage. And then a few verses later in verse 23, he is thumbing his chest, bragging about the fact that he has murdered a man who hurt him, justifying his actions, no repentance, no heart for God. And so we we see a promise is given, but there is no sign of faithfulness from the line of Cain. There is no sign of faithfulness of those born of Eve until we reach the very end of chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, which tell us that Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also, 
a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so we are shown that there is a clear contrast between the line of Cain and this new line that that God has given from Eve, the line of Seth. And so now we reach chapter 5. And the storyline now advances and it, it begins to tell us, so what happens with the line of Seth? Why is he important? Who follows him? We will see in this chapter that God not only has a response to all of the sin and its destructiveness, the rebellion of men, God not only has a response. Here is the main point of the message. God always has the last word. God always has the last word. And that is a truth we all need. Because the ugliness of sin has not disappeared. We, we see it all around us. We see the perversion and destructiveness of sin in ways that is hard to imagine, hard to take in. We experience the effects of sin against us. It splashes against our life and brings sorrow and heartache, so many burdens we carry. And we even, we even see those effects of sin in us. We have the disappointment of our own soul from what comes out of our mouth and what's in our minds and how we act not only to those that we may not have much of a relationship, but even those we love most dearly. We find ourselves misusing them, being caustic. So what do we see in this chapter about God having the last word? First, verses 1 to 3, we see that God has the last word over all of the actions of humanity. Verse 1, this is the book of the generation of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female. He created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. In those verses, we see the major themes that we read about in chapter one, when all of creation was perfect. And now when we know the world is no longer perfect, God again brings those themes back in that we would see God still rules over 
the world. God has not lost his sovereignty. God is not out of control over what is happening. These themes are repeated and the implication is this all remains true. God is still the creator and sustainer of everything in existence. It is still true that blessing comes by the hand of God. It is still true that we belong to God. He has brought us into existence. He has named us. And despite the ravages of sin and the fact that it deeply affects us, we still are beings in the image of God. Which means our identity is from God. We saw that in our series over recent weeks. We do not have to find our identity somewhere. In fact, you cannot find your identity somewhere. God has given it to you. And he has given you the highest identity possible to be an image bearer of himself. Meaning comes as we understand. That we are gods. So nothing people can ever do will ever cancel God's promises or his purpose for you. (laughs) All of humanity together is incapable of overthrowing the purposes of God and his promises for you. God has the last word about his garden, which we see in the last book of the Bible he will have, about his people whom he redeems. And God has the last word about what he is doing in you. You're being sustained as a Christian. The outcome of your life as a Christian is not in your hands. You have work in it, which the Bible gives us, but it it remains in the hands of God. The fulfillment of what he will do is always up to God. He will have the last word about how your life ends up. So we see God has the last word over the actions of humanity. Secondly, we see that God has the last word over sin, which is The heart of this passage, beginning in verse 4. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Adam lived were 930 years. And he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth 
lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. God told Adam and Eve, that if they were to eat of the true, which he commanded them not to, if they were to disregard what he said, they would die. From the beginning, God has told us the wages of sin is death. In verse 5, Adam lived 930 years and he died. This is the first death recorded that was not by murder. We read how long they lived and we're just amazed. We get caught up in these vast numbers. But imagine, imagine the scene around that grave. Uh, they had heard that the wage of sin was death. But the centuries just went on. One century after another, and life went on, and children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and all that fills life, it all just kept going on. And somehow life is just going to keep going. And then, after over 900 years, God snapped his fingers and Adam took his last breath. And there his family, they stood over a hole in the ground and they could not believe it. Adam is dead. Which means we We've been here a long time. We will be dead. The drumbeat of death then continues. And he died. And he died. In fact, the, the phrase, and he died, in the Hebrew it is just one word. So it is very abrupt. Died, 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 died. Everyone died. 
Death is common, but it is not natural. Death is a horrid interruption of life, of love, of goodness, of relationship. The world tries to bring some meaning and talks about cycle of life. Death is horrible because death was not meant to be experienced or seen, even comprehended in this world. It is the horrid judgment of God to stop sin and bring the judgment it deserves. God did not create us for death. The long lives of those early generations is a demonstration of that. God created us with bodies that would just go and live and experience and rejoice in God forever. And sin, with its corruption and sorrow, it brought death in its wake. God warned. He would judge sin. And God has the last word. There is a third way in which we see God has the last word. Not only over sin with death, God also has the last word over death itself. We've already sung about it today. Verses 21 to 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah, 300 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years, were waiting for the words that don't come. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. It, it is this shocking interruption of, and he died, and he died, and he died, and, and he didn't die. God took him. And, and we clearly know that's what is meant here because in Hebrews 11 verse 5, it, it tells us very plainly that Enoch didn't die and God took him. Now, God does not arbitrarily skip death for Enoch. God is given, giving all of humanity a sign that even death is in his hand. He has the last word over death and he did make a promise. He made a promise of what he would destroy and of the victory he would bring. The promise of Genesis 3.15 is still 
true. What Satan started, God will end. This promise and the one who will bring the victory of this promise, they are so sure and true that looking ahead to his faithfulness with a promise, looking ahead to the faithfulness who would carry out the promise, God could take Enoch without going through death as a demonstration of how great the victory will be and that God is still holding humanity and carrying us as he makes our way to the fulfillment of his promise and that is how this world will end with the full display of God's promise to such a clear degree that the scripture tells us that every living being of men and demons and angels will cast themselves upon the ground and praise him who is Lord over all, including death. What set Enoch's life apart? Verses 22 and 24, and Enoch walked with God. His not experiencing death was a grace. The unmerited goodness of God, undeserved, but God gives it, but it was God's work in him that he walked with God, which is why God chose Enoch to display his power over the grave and his power over sin, which brings the grave. To walk with God is how life was meant to be. We see it in the garden. That was what garden life was, to walk with God. And in chapter 3, verse 8, we read, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord because they had sinned and had shame. But what a picture. We, we don't fully know what the manifestation of God was in this way, but it was the physical presence of God walking with those he had created. That is what he meant life to be. That is what your soul was given for. Every molecule in your body was made and meant to walk with God. 
You have eyes that you might see God. You have ears that you might hear him. You have hands that you might hold his. You have a heart so that you might love God who loves you. Your whole being is designed to be in relationship with your God. To walk with God conveys ongoing nearness and friendship. That's what to walk with someone is. You don't walk with someone and then go opposite directions around the block. To walk with someone is right there with them. Continuing to go together, the same direction, together. That's what it is to walk with God. Walking is not complicated. You show up, you go forward, and stay in the same direction. That's walking. And that is how we're meant to live. By grace, it's how Enoch lived. God has the last word. And when we walk with him, that last word is grace. It is the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, life with him forever. Because God always has the last word, let me Mention three things quickly that are true. Because God always has the last word, sin cannot reward us. Sin doesn't have the capacity to reward us. Uh, it can give some things that make us happy for a little while. Sin will never improve your life. Remember the old fable? The prince who kisses the frog becomes the princess, or is it the other word, way around, the princess kisses the frog. Someone kisses a frog, and then the person of the dreams pops into existence. The reality is, in sin, you, you kiss what you think is your dream, and it becomes the frog. That's what sin really does. That's what you, you end up holding. That's what you end up staring at. Your heart racing, your dreams are going to be met. And that's what you end up with. Sin always, always leads to distortion because it always lies. Sin always leads to deterioration. It always breaks down. And so sin always leads to regret. And in the end, sin always leads to death. Sin is incapable of giving anything else. Every compromise, every 
justification that sin gives to you, whispers to you, is always a lie. Because God always has the last word, sin cannot reward us. Secondly, because God always has the last word, the gospel will never fail us. For the gospel of Jesus Christ is how God fulfills the promise from chapter 3. That he would destroy the works of Satan. The gospel is how that takes place. That after millennium of of mankind trying to make it work and thinking they had all kinds of deliverers and saviors and, and some men and women raised up that did noble, wonderful things, but all of them failed in different ways. No one was capable of being the deliverer. And then God stepped in literally, not figuratively, but the almighty eternal son of God joined himself to the egg in Mary's womb and God in flesh, fully man, fully God, was the person of Jesus Christ. And for the first time, someone lived in this world and never sinned and was perfect and faithful and in totality expressed what it meant to be someone who loved and followed God and then the perfect one rather than exalting himself in a throne that someone built out of wood and gold he thrust himself upon a cross and he took upon himself the sin and guilt in its full measure of everyone who would believe in him. And then he died and paid the price for your sin. And then on the third day, by his own authority, he marched out of the grave the body full alive, unstoppable, reigning, ascending, and now ruling everywhere over everything. And everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus, he says, I will not cast you out, I will save. Whoever recognizes the hopelessness of you saving yourself, the hopelessness of anyone else saving you, the hopelessness of any man-made religion as though we can enforce upon God how he will be pleased. Rather, God gave us how to please him, to have our sins forgiven through the sacrifice of his son and then to walk with him. Christ has already conquered sin. Christ has already conquered death. Christ has already conquered Satan. And so the gospel cannot fail 
because it has already overcome everything it came to overcome. Christ has won the victory and nothing can overcome the one who has already conquered death. And so the gospel, as you give yourself to it and live it out, the gospel cannot fail you. There is no weakness in the gospel. And the, the Bible tells us it will, it will seem like foolishness to men. It seems like foolishness. Because in this world, wisdom is what you do for yourself and what you accomplish. In this world, it is what you can point to with pride that you have done. And true wisdom is the humility to see who God is, what he has done. But there is no weakness in the gospel. So we should walk in it. It should be what shapes how we think, how we respond. And we could apply this in endless ways, but I will, I will speak of one. Parents, If you shape your home by any influence other than the gospel, it will fail. It will fail. The only kingdom left standing is that of Christ. And the means he has given is his gospel. And if you do not shape your home and build it on the gospel... It will end up with deceit, deterioration, regret, and death. There's no other option. The only hope we have is to throw ourselves upon the mercy of God who is ever true and faithful. And his gospel will not fail you. We cannot make our children believe as much as we want to. But we can, we can call upon God who desires to save so much. He entered this world and died. And we can hold to the gospel being true. And we can set the priorities of our home not on the busyness. Being a good parent is not being the busiest parent on the block. It is making sure we set our sights on Christ day by day. And what does that mean in the choices we make, what we give up and what we take on? Is it about we will exalt the person of Christ? Or anything else we exalt will fall down. And lastly... Because God always has the last word. Walking with God, it will always fulfill our soul. Because God created us to be fulfilled. God created us to walk with 
him. Failure to walk with God is always loss. Less of God is, as we would say, the worst. You want to know what really is the worst? There is a the worst. The worst is to ignore God, to not walk with God. That is the worst. Priority one each day is to walk with God. That makes it a good day, even if it's an uncomfortable day, a sad day, a hard day. In the eyes of God, to the heart of God, a day you've walked with him, God declares, this was a good day. And forever, we will thank him for every good day. May our heart desire for that kind of good day. And here's the good news. You can have that kind of good day. Whether you're stuck in bed sick today, or it seems everything you have is being taken away, or you're opposed or you're confused, you can walk with God because he's always here. He's always with you. You can talk to him. You can go to him. You can just sit in his presence, not knowing anything else of what to do. All you know is God is here and I'm his. So it will be okay. Walk with God, for he is good, he is wise, he is strong. The nation's rage, how we see it. I was speaking to Pastor Michael this week in Ukraine, where death and the raging of destruction is all around him. And just shared from this text, in these words, there's nothing else to give him. Oh, the war turned out all right. God will have the last word. And to that truth, he praised God. Yes, that's my hope. When the nations rage, our hope is only God has the last word. It is not in who you're going to elect. We've been electing people for centuries. Name one that fixed the world. We like some better than others. Some do some things a little better than others. No one we elect will save us. So let's not act that way talk that way, give our hope to it. Let's be people of God who are not settling, who are not settling for someone who has a morality. 
Let's settle for Jesus Christ, faith in him, in his word, and that we will preach Christ crucified and some will be saved. Let that be what unites us and let the world fight about the rest. We don't have time or energy for that. I need to move on. That's a wormhole you won't get out of. The nations rage, people fail, their ideas fail. But God remains on the throne. He alone will have the last word of judgment and of life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you we have nothing to offer to give we have no good reason why you should even pause to look at us but you have promised and so that's what we go to you have promised you would save those who call upon you you have promised that you would not ignore us. You have promised that you would not pass us by. You have promised you will not leave us or forsake us. You have promised you will love us to the uttermost. So we come to you, God of promise, and we ask that you would fulfill what you have said to us. And be, be strength to us that we would believe every word of it and live as if it's true. And for each one who does, has not been convinced of it, hasn't given their life to it, or is just dabbling on the edges, may we all turn to Jesus and that you would fill our hearts with you because we need you.